As concerns over the coronavirus continue to ripple throughout the world, officials around Missouri are focusing on preventing the spread of the disease. Missouri Governor Mike Parson held a press briefing this week about how state health officials are planning ahead. Our main focus is on educating the public about the virus and the steps to prevent it, especially in prisons, nursing homes, and mental health facilities. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, we talk with St. Louis Public Radio's Sarah Fenton about what Missourians should know about the coronavirus. We also check in with St. Louis Public Radio's Jacqueline Driscoll and Rachel Lippman about some of the big stories percolating around the Missouri State Capitol and St. Louis City Hall. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City is our State House reporter, Jacqueline Driscoll. And we're going to be talking to St. Louis Public Radio, Sarah Fenton and Rachel Lipman later in the show. But I wanted to spend the first part of the first segment talking about legislation around LGBTQ issues that have has gotten a lot of attention in Jefferson City. Jacqueline, you've been following several bills that have provoked a lot of passion, especially on the Democratic side. Uh, give our listeners a, a sense of what's going on here. House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid spoke to some reporters yesterday before uh, lawmakers left town, and she expressed some concerns about now that there that there are what they classify as anti-LGBTQ bills. She says there are now 19 of them that have been filed. However, um, there are three that have only there are only three of them that have really been heard in committee. Um, one is in regards to um, those in uh, in school who are playing sports need to participate in sports with the gender that is on their birth certificate. And then the other two bills would essentially classify gender reassignment as child abuse or a crime. My understanding is there was a very lengthy hearing on some of these bills this week. Uh, what did both sides of this debate have to say? Right. It was a very lengthy hearing. It lasted around four hours. Um, Those weren't the only bills being discussed, um, but they did spend about two of the hours in the committee hearing just on those sole bills that deal with gender reassignment surgery. Um, But here is Representative Susie Pollack on why she has introduced her bill. The side effects for transgender children who undergo these procedures include sterility, sexual dysfunction, blood clots, strokes, cardiac disease, osteoporosis, cancer, and persistently high rates of suicide. Our children are not experimental subjects to use off-label dangerous drugs and procedures on. There is currently no scientific evidence or comprehensive studies that prove efficacy or long-term health benefits. Jacqueline, my understanding, though, is that the opponents of Representative Pollock's legislation were much more abundant than the proponents. Is that fair to say? 
Definitely. There were a lot of people there to testify um, as, you know, for their own, for themselves, um, for their children who were going through some issues. Some moms were there um, because their children, their child had killed themselves. And one of those people is Monica Mungo. Um, And here's a little bit about why she chose to come and testify at that hearing. You've heard a lot of these parents speak about their worst fears. I live it. I live it. My son was not trans. He was gay. He was two months past his 21st birthday when he elected not to live in a world where legislation like this is brought forward at our taxpayers' expense. I consider legislation like this itself a breach of decorum. Now, at least one Republican was speaking out against these types of ideas in committee. Jacqueline, what did he have to say? Right. Uh, Republican Representative Tom Hannigan, he's from the St. Charles area. He is an openly gay member in the legislature, um, and he sat through the entire hearing. He was towards the end, um, and he wanted to get up and express his concerns with the the bill, and um, this is what he had to say. Hello, fellow colleagues. Um, Representative, do me a favor. You're actually not allowed to testify. Take that pin off and I'll give you 30 seconds. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) I just felt like I sat here as long as everybody else did that I couldn't, I'd be remiss if I didn't come up here. So anyway. uh, To allow it, but I'm going to. Go ahead. Thank you. Wow, you're pretty, I got to on the nice thing. Maybe without dinner, you guys are really nice. I just basically uh, just want to say um, thank you for this opportunity. I just couldn't leave here without saying that I am totally no on this. I ask my fellow colleagues, I ask you guys, please don't let this go any further. Please vote this no. Uh, so it doesn't even need to be talked about on the floor. This is a, a bad bill. You've heard everybody um, talk about this. And again, I'm just so opposed to this. Thank you. Is there any indication that Republican leaders actually want some of these bills to make it to the House floor? You know, I haven't actually had the opportunity to speak to Republican leadership on this. Um, House Speaker Elijah Hart did not have a press conference uh, like the House usually does at the end of the of the legislative week. So we haven't really gotten the chance to speak to any real Republicans about this bill. Um, but it is very clear that the Democrats do not want this to make it through committee. They do not even want it to be heard on the floor. And they are doing what they can to make sure that happens. So not only are Democrats opposing these particular pieces of legislation, but they're also trying to advocate for a bill that would add sexual orientation and gender identity into the state's anti-discrimination statutes. This is known as MONA. It's been introduced for almost 20 years. What are you hearing about any potential ability to get those particular pieces of legislation across the finish line? Yeah, that's actually I learned at the press conference that it's actually the 22nd consecutive year that this bill has been introduced in Missouri, um, which I think is remarkable that it's a piece of legislation that keeps coming up year after year after year. Um, And at this time, the bill still has not been assigned to any committee. Um, So as you heard earlier, obviously, because we we heard clips from those public hearings, those measures have been assigned to committee, um, you know, classifying gender reassignment as child abuse. But Mona has not been assigned by the speaker yet. Well, thank you, Jacqueline, for bringing us up to speed on those high profile issues. We'll hear from you later in the show.
And joining us on the show now is St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman. And we're going to talk about a couple of aldermanic vacancies, one because of an unfortunate death and the other because of a federal indictment. Let's start with the federal indictment, because that's what happened this week. Alderman Larry Ornowitz was indicted. Tell me what happened, Rachel. So uh, the first hint that something was going on came on Tuesday when Alderman Arnowitz submitted a letter of resignation to the board president, Lewis Reed. It was a single statement letter, single sentence letter, basically saying, I resigned for personal reasons. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch was actually the first to report that he was going to be indicted for campaign finance charges, essentially using his campaign fund for uh, personal expenses. And an indictment made public on Wednesday. Wednesday, he was charged with one count of mail fraud because he allegedly uh, used some of his campaign donations to pay his mortgage, and they got him on mail fraud because he mailed the check to his mortgage company. You know, on first blush, I was thinking that the only victims of this crime are his donors. Yeah. Because it's not like he took city money and paid his mortgage. But you, you, it's very clear that what he's accused of is against the law. Yes, it's definitely against the law in that when you make the case to your donors, you are saying, I'm going to use this to pay for my campaign expenses. And I know that there are ways that if you can connect it to the campaign, that you can use your campaign fund for some kind of personal expenses, but not to pay your mortgage. What struck me was that this is something that's normally handled with a state ethics commission case. He's not the first alderman to get caught up with an issue of using personal campaign or using his campaign funds for personal expenses. Uh, Casey Starr Triplett, she's now Casey Starr Long. She was the alder woman from the sixth ward, and in 2014, she was ordered to pay a 10% of a $100,000 fine for using her campaign fund for things like shopping trips, student loans, her mortgage, etc. So what startled me was that this rose to the level of a federal crime. What has been Ornowitz's reaction to being indicted? Arnowitz himself has not said anything, but this is what his attorney, Patrick Conroy, had to say after a brief court hearing on Wednesday. It's a very hard time for his family right now. Very difficult. And um, he, uh, he loved what he did. He loved helping people. And um, he's going to obviously retire from public life. So, and I know he appreciates all the well wishes from the many people who have said nice things to him. So, Rachel, I didn't really talk with Alderman Ornowitz that much. He wasn't really one of the, like, most vocal aldermen in the world. But he did chair the, the, the Aldermanic Health Committee. And he has been around since 2011 on the Board of Aldermen, which means he has a reasonable amount of seniority. Especially after a lot of the changes, for sure. So what do you think the, the impact of him leaving will be? It's hard to say other than it just adds to the churn of seniority that we have seen over the last couple of years with some longtime aldermen, long-term aldermen, either leaving the board due to uh, elections, retirements, unfortunate deaths, for example. But in terms of how it impacts voting coalitions or impacts things going forward, he never really stood up and presented himself as someone who was going to be publicly making deals, publicly pushing for things. Behind the scenes, I'm sure he knew how to operate. But he was he would occasionally get up and comment on bills, especially those that had an impact on city workers. He was a long term city employee before he was elected alderman. 
he seemed to be well liked by his colleagues. A lot of individuals were shocked that he got caught up in this. But no, he wasn't an individual who necessarily stood out or that you knew of unless you were really covering the board of aldermen or were from his ward. So I mentioned on the outset that this is the second vacancy on the board of aldermen. Alderman Sam Moore of the fourth ward passed away after a long illness. I think about two weeks ago? Yes, about two weeks ago. Uh, I think Tuesday of, yeah, about two weeks ago. So the reason I'm lumping these two vacancies together is not because obviously they're related in substance, but it means that there's going to have to be special elections for the fourth ward, which is in North St. Louis, and the 12th ward, which is in Southwest St. Louis. Can you just explain what the process is? Because I think you and I understand it, but to the average city of St. Louis resident, resident, it may seem opaque and confusing. The 4th Ward and the 12th Ward both had elections back in 2019. And that means that we are more than 180 days away from the next general election for those seats. Under the city charter, there will be a special election to fill these seats between 75 and 90 days after the vacancy. What I expect to happen is that they will just pick a Tuesday that meets the qualification for both of those wards and hold the election on the same day. It will be up to the Democratic Central Committee to pick the Democratic nominee for both of those wards, and anyone else can come in and run as independents. Now, interestingly, the fourth ward, it's kind of assumed that uh, fourth ward committee woman Dwyane Evans is probably going to be the nominee. My understanding you would is suspect, yeah. The under, my understanding is more wanted her to be his successor. Yes, and she has very frequently been seen sitting off to the side, uh, probably keeping tabs on it, checking to see what is going on, whether it was to report back to him or to just inform herself, knowing it was likely that she might join them at the board. So the reason I'm mentioning Dwyane Evans in particular is if she does succeed Sam Moore, the Board of Aldermen would be majority female for the first time ever. And I, I think that uh, that would definitely be a milestone that I think people would notice. St. Louis County Council is obviously majority female. But being a majority female on the Board of Aldermen is obviously a lot harder because there are 29 seats as opposed to seven. It would be very interesting to see if it changed policy or tone down there. Some of the issue is that uh, a lot of the more senior members of the Board of Aldermen down there are male and the presiding officer is male so that the flow of business probably wouldn't change. But it is certainly an accomplishment, as you mentioned, on a larger board of 29 people counting the board president to reach the majority female plateau. And in the 12th Ward, the committee man is Gregory F.X. Daly, who is the collector of revenue. So if you're interested in being the 12th Ward alderman, probably should pay your earnings taxes on time. Yes, and all of the other taxes, your water bill, etc., everything that you pay to Gregory F.X. Daly, collector of revenue. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure as always to be on. We're going to take a quick break, but after that break, we're going to talk with St. Louis Public Radio's health reporter, Sarah Fenton, about how local and state authorities are preparing for the coronavirus. And joining me now in studio is St. Louis Public Radio health reporter Sarah Fenton. Sarah, this is your first time on Politically Speaking, isn't it? It is. It's my debut. I'm so excited. Well, we're going to be talking about a topic that everyone around the world is talking about, and that is coronavirus. And what I want to ask you first is how state and local agencies are preparing for this disease. 
So the name of the game right now is Prevention and Education for both state and local health departments. Um, There have been no recorded cases in Missouri. There have been only a few in Illinois, and most of those are not, I think all of those are not in the St. Louis region. Um, So right now, our area is still considered at a very low risk for this virus. Obviously, you know, this is, you know, a, a virus and that can change. But at the moment, Uh, Missouri is still considered a low risk. So what a lot of um, what I'm hearing from state and local officials, including the governor and um, the the health director for the St. Louis City Health Department, Fred Eccles and uh, Sam Page, is that um, they're monitoring the spread and they are trying to educate people as much as they can about preventing the spread of this once it does come. And that means telling everyone, wash your hands, um, stay home if you're sick, um, you know, be sure to wipe everything down with Clorox and use soap and water, um, and beware of, if you're sick, going to see any older friends or friends who might have chronic illnesses. So it's really a prevention game at this point. And then also uh, tracking and uh, talking to the state health department about any risks of new cases coming in. Here is St. Louis County Executive Sam Page during his comments at this week's county council meeting about how St. Louis County is preparing for the coronavirus. The role of the county is threefold. First, we will prepare. We are monitoring the status of the outbreak around the globe, but also here in our community. There are no cases in St. Louis, And in fact, there aren't any in Missouri. The closest one is Chicago. But we know that new cases are being confirmed every day, and we will continue to provide regular updates. Our role is also to educate. We will regularly provide reliable and accurate information to the public and use our website and social media as ways to communicate. I will also be holding press conferences as new information develops. We will respond. We will strategically activate our resources when needed and collaborate with our regional partners to fight the outbreak. So that's a sense of how locally it's being done. How how is how are state officials preparing for this? State officials are uh, they're in constant contact with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention right now. And um, any state person that you talk to is going to say we are te- we are doing what the federal government tells us to do right now. And that means they are in charge of testing. So there's a state lab in Jefferson City that has been set up by uh, the Department of Health. And um, that lab is in charge of running the tests for anyone who meets the CDC requirements for the test. So right now, um, you've probably heard, if you are concerned about the coronavirus, you think you might have it, um, you can't just walk into an urgent care center or walk into an emergency room and receive a test. You have to meet these very specific guidelines about travel and potential um, exposure to someone who has been tested positive. Um, so if you meet those requirements um, and you've been to a place like Northern it- Italy or China and you have the symptoms, then the State Department will decide to run a test. What are some of the symptoms? Um, so they're very, it's, it's difficult because they're very similar, if not identical, to the flu and other respiratory illnesses. So um, it's uh, a serious cough in some people, fever, and shortness of breath is what we are told to look out for. 
um, which can sound a lot like the common cold or the flu. And so that's why they're looking at those symptoms in combination with these other risk factors uh, in terms of exposure and travel. My understanding is that especially if you're older and you contract the coronavirus, it is a lot more potential to be deadly than, say, if you're younger. Am, mm-hmm. I, am I mistaken on that? Yeah, and that's true for a lot of illnesses, respiratory illnesses, especially. Um, I mean, like, think about how we talk about the flu. Um, people say, oh, you need to get vaccinated because even if you don't get sick, you're protecting other people from getting sick who might have chronic health conditions. And that already puts their immune system um, at risk. And so then once you add on another virus on top of that, that can be deadly for those people who are a little bit, I don't want, I don't know if I want to say fragile, but their immune systems are not um, as hardy as some other people. And so that's who is really at risk for this, which is the same as for other illnesses as well. When I was walking through Washington University after I was finished adjuncting on Monday, I saw a flyer on the wall that said, don't be racist about coronavirus, which I think was trying to signal that just because you see somebody of Asian descent, yeah. doesn't don't run away from them and think they have coronavirus. Have Has there been any aspect, has there been any instruction from governmental officials about that aspect, about how you shouldn't necessarily like racially profile against Asian people because this is associated with China. Yeah, right. And I've seen those uh, those posters at WashU too. They're bright yellow. They're really, really hard to miss. Um, and I think that's something that is uh, very heartening to see from local officials, especially um, uh, Dr. Fred Eccles, who's the head of the health department at the city of St. Louis, um, made special mention of that during a press conference on Friday. He said just because this illness has originated in China doesn't mean that Chinese people or Asian people are more at risk for this virus. It doesn't mean that they're more contagious. And it's really important for people to not become ignorant and uh, be racist based on these uh, this outbreak. So if you had to sum up kind of what the state and local response is to to this virus, what would it be? I think they're preventing the spread and they're waiting to see what happens here and in other states. Um, so right now, again, um, it's a lot of monitoring. Uh, But as we've seen in some of the coastal states, and now I think there have been cases recorded in Tennessee as well, um, you're seeing this spread beyond people who have been to those affected countries. We're seeing what we call community spread, which is when they this uh, virus spreads throughout a community and not necessarily from someone who has been exposed to someone who is sick. Um, So that means that it's probably a matter of when and not if this is coming. And so all of this could change at the drop of the hat. We could see a case here in Missouri or multiple cases as soon as like, you know, this hour. It's just a waiting game at this point. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this issue. You can read all of Sarah's stories at stlpublicradio.org. How can people follow you on Twitter, by the way? Um, I am at Petite Smudge. Uh, that's Petite underscore uh, Smudge. And you can find my Twitter in my uh, profile on our website. Thank you very much, Sarah. We'll be right back after this short break. <laughs> 
And we're back with St. Louis Public Radio's Jacqueline Driscoll for our final segment, which we call Show Me Something. We're going to talk about the Democratic presidential contest again, because a lot has changed since we had our presidential podcast last week. Some of the people that we talked about on that show, including Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Michael Bloomberg, and Amy Klobuchar are out of the race. And now it's a two-man showdown in Missouri on March 10th between former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Jacqueline, this is your first statewide election as a reporter in Missouri. What are going to be some things you're going to be looking out for when the results trickle into the Secretary of State's office? I'm just excited to see the dynamic of how the state votes. Um, Illinois was pretty stagnant um, for the past couple years where the Chicago area is predominantly Democratic and then downstate typically was more conservative. So I'm I'm eager to see how it all plays out here in Missouri. Surrogates for both uh, Biden and Sanders are trying to make the case that their respective candidates would be best for Missouri Democrats later on in the year. I'm going to play two clips now, one from Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, a Biden supporter, and from Alderwoman Megan Green, a Sanders supporter. When I was talking with Cleaver earlier this week, he mentioned to me that Biden would be better for Missouri Democrats because when he was Barack Obama's running mate in 2008, Biden was part of a ticket that almost won Missouri. This is what Cleaver had to say. So I'm not sure that I could, I would be uh, a person to say that they uh, can't win Missouri because they, they, they certainly came extremely, uh, extremely close to, the, to winning the state. And here is Alderwoman Green about why she feels that Sanders is the better candidate for Missouri Democrats. You know, what what we see with um, with the Trump administration and with Trump moving forward is that he has a movement behind him. Whether we like that movement or want to uh, admit that that movement exists, it, it is real. And I think that the way that we counter this movement that is behind Donald Trump is with our own movement. And we are seeing that Senator Sanders is the only candidate in this race that has really consolidated a movement behind him. One angle we haven't really touched on that much on this show is what Republicans think of the Biden-Sanders scramble. Jacqueline, you were at a press conference with Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden, a Republican from Columbia. What did he have to say about how the GOP is, is, is viewing their candidate. You know, it wasn't anything too out of the ordinary from what I've heard from other Republicans in this building. They obviously support the incumbent. They would like to see President Donald Trump reelected. Um, basically, he said that um, he holds, you know, a lot of popularity here within the state, and he suspects that it'll go favorably for Republicans. Here is Senator Rowden. The best I can tell, the president's position is strong. Um, you know, the... the um, there are any number of crazy things that happen on a day-to-day basis with the economy and obviously the coronavirus and other things that we've seen pop up on a national stage. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when I, when I talk to constituents, you ask them a very basic question, are you better off, uh, you know, right now than you were four years ago? And generally the answer is yes. I think where Rowden is basing that observation on is the fact that most public opinion polls show that Trump is at or above 50 percent approval rating in the state, which is higher than the national average. And in 2016 and 2018, uh, Republicans were able to do well because of Trump's popularity. I think it'll remain to be seen if that popularity lasts through November, because 
as Rowden mentioned, there are external events that can change someone's popularity very quickly. Obviously, in 2008, Republicans were very unpopular in Missouri because of a crashing economy and the Iraq war. So I guess this is just a, 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 a roundabout way of saying maybe it's too early to prognosticate at this point. Definitely. And uh, uniquely, I, I believe uh, Rowden's district has parts of Boone County in it that I from what I gather, actually skewed heavily towards uh, Bernie. So I think that that'll be an interesting matchup, too, to pay attention to as results come in on Tuesday. And after Missourians go to the polls, Illinois residents will be casting their ballot for their Democratic presidential candidate of choice on March 17th. Jacqueline and I will definitely be watching that with great interest since as has been said ad nauseum on this show, we are both <laughs> Illinois natives. Hi, LL. On that note, Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And how can people follow you on Twitter, Jacqueline? Driscoll NPR. We'll be back next time. And until then, so long.